So, well, let's have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, your word is such a great treasure, uh, and now we turn to it. Uh, we've been in these passages multiple times over our lives, but um, would you meet with us today and and help us understand even better what you're doing? Uh, we need to understand. You know better than we do how badly we need to understand your word. Um, so assist us today so that we may walk before you in faith with confidence in all that you're doing. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. All right. Romans 3. Now, we, we looked at verses 1 to 8 briefly last week. Um, but Paul is, Paul is addressing a basic problem here. If what he's saying is true, if all Jews are already under condemnation along with all Gentiles then does does Israel have any advantage? And, and he says much in every way. And so by way of summary here on the screen, the profit the Jews derive is their preeminence, which by their unbelief only exposes them to God's justice without commending them in any way to God. So, yeah, they it's as he says in, in, in Romans 1, it's to, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But that means that judgment is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So, so uh, the the issue for them, as we looked at it briefly last week, is judgment is is a certainty. And then he will explain why he knows that in chapter three nine to eighteen. So let's pick it up there, <clears throat> three nine. What then? Your text may say, I'm not sure what your text says. What, what verse verse nine? How does it read? What then? What then? What's, what comes next? Are we better than they? Do you, do you all have something like that? Do we have any advantage? There, there's another way to read this, and, and both are possible, and I'm not sure which way to go with it. The other way to read this is, um, do we have any defense? It, this would be a word that you would use for holding up a shield in front of you. Uh, so do we have any defense? And... Uh, uh, so it could go either way, and it's it's not clear. Um, and Paul says, uh, entirely no. For we have b- before proven that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. <laughs> um, as it is written. And now we come into that long uh, series of quotations. Before we go there, though, would you look at verse 19 in chapter 3? Um, we know that um, as, as much as the law says, it says to those who are in the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world held guilty before God. You have the word law there twice, do you? In verse 19. Yeah. Uh, the series of quotations, none of it comes from the law. Uh, it's from Psalms, it's from Proverbs, it's from Ecclesiastes, it's from Isaiah. Not one verse is from Moses. So what is Paul talking about with the word law? Uh, there, there are two things that you need to know. Um, Paul was conversant with the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. And when he quotes it, what's interesting is when he quotes it, he most often quotes it from the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. There's a reason for doing that. Um, uh, Let's suppose that I could speak German well enough to be able to preach in German. When I'm I'm preaching in German, I, I couldn't possibly do that, but let's suppose that I could. When I'm preaching in German in a a German church, would you expect me to be reading an English text and translating as I go? Or would you expect me to read a German Bible aloud and quote the German text to them? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. It's much easier to do. Uh, so, So this is what Paul's doing. His readers are conversant with Greek. 
one of the amazing things in Galatians chapter 3 talks about this in the fullness of time God sent forth his, his son the fullness of time there's a lot of things going on in that fullness of time it's not only in the fulfillment of all the plan of God but it's also uh, the first time in world history to that point where there is a huge number of people who are, who are not all conversant with the same language, but so many are that there is a lingua franca in the world. And you can speak to millions of people, not just thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, but millions of people in a single language. Yeah, it is like English as it is now. Um, so what do you expect Paul to do? translate from Hebrew into Greek or just take the already existing Greek translations and use that in his, and that's what he typically does. Once in a while, it's clear that Paul in his translation, in his quotation of the Old Testament, is actually translating from the Hebrew, but it's not very frequent. It's most of the time he's quoting from one of the Greek translations. Uh, So, one thing that you need to be aware of is that the Greek word uh, law, nomos is the, is the Greek word, is a translation in the Old Testament for the, Greek, the Hebrew word Torah. And I'll, I suppose most of you have heard the word Torah. <laughs> Modern Jews will say Torah. And I think, this is New York Jews who do that. That's something they should do in Alabama, but not in New York. Torah. <laughs> uh, but Torah in Hebrew doesn't mean law in itself. It, well, it means instruction. Instruction, that's it. That's it. Teaching, instruction. Uh, in certain contexts, it can mean law. But it doesn't mean law inherently. Wasn't it the first five books? Of the- well, that was, that's what it is now. But that doesn't mean it was, that's what it was in always in uh, Jewish thought. Um, Habakkuk, is it Habakkuk? No, it's Haggai chapter 2. I'm confident that you've been spending time in Haggai, perhaps even memorizing the passage. But in Haggai chapter 2, Haggai consists of four messages that God delivered through Haggai to the, the people after their return from Babylonian captivity about the rebuilding of the temple. And in the third message, it begins in chapter 2, verse... 10 or so uh, God says to Haggai go to the priests and ask for a Torah and the and the the question he's to ask is if a man is carrying uh, in the fold of his garment carrying holy meat from the sacrifice and the hem of his garment touches something that's unclean uh, will the holiness of the meat sanctify what's unclean? And the answer is no. Then he asks it, now I've got, I've got some of the detail just a little bit mixed up, but you can, this, this represents the message, basically. It says, will what is unclean contaminate what is clean? And the answer is yes. A, a, a ritual holiness is not communicable but ritual defilement is communicable. And so the, the priest's answer is the Torah. It's the explanation, it's the instruction about how this all works. Does it make sense to you? So the whole Bible, from, the, from, from Paul's point of view, the whole Bible, what we would call Genesis to Malachi, is Torah. Psalms is Torah, Proverbs is Torah, are you with me here? Lamentations is Torah. Ecclesiastes is Torah. It's not that there are rules to be lived by. It's that all of this is instruction from the Lord. Does this make sense to you? So in Romans 3, verses uh, 10 to 18, I have a series of quotations. first one is from Ecclesiastes in, so- in Psalm 14. Um, we have previously proved that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written there is none righteous 
Not even one. There is no one who understands. And I have a note here to myself written in pencil um, that I wrote in this text a number of years ago. And I went back and reviewed this yesterday. The, the word, the, there is none who understands, is used frequently in the Old Testament for having a genuine understanding of God and his ways. Am I making sense to you? Proverbs uses it this way. Ecclesiastes does. As it turns out here in Psalm 14, it's the same thing. So there's no one who understands. Uh, it's what we said back in chapter 1. Their understandings are darkened. Yes? Uh, so there's no one who understands. Uh, there is no one who seeks God. Well, I know that's not true. Because I've heard the missionaries. Haven't you heard missionary stories like this? Missionary went into the village and was preaching the gospel. And I said, where have you been? We've been praying to God to send us this message. So if no one is seeking God, how'd that happen? Well, one of two things is true. Either the missionary is telling you a little, little fable or something else is true. What else? God was at work in that tribe preparing them for the coming of the gospel. Right? So, so it still would be true, apart from the grace of God, no one seeks God. Does that include my mama? Well, you don't know my mama. How come you can say yes? <laughs> in, in some of that... Especially in the whole text there, isn't it God defining the term for yeah, us? Yeah, that's right. So no one seeks God. They have all turned away. And they've together become useless. Useless. That's a, that's a strong word. Um, there is none who does good. Let me stop here because we've got real problems with this. Isn't that something left alone? This is the state of humanity. Well, yeah, uh, and there's there's a, a real point in that. Uh, but but what constitutes an act as good? Only if the source is God. Only if the source is God, and that's that's hitting right at the core of the issue. The issue is even lost people do good things. Uh, they can be good neighbors, good friends, good, good fathers and mothers, yes, good citizens. Even lost people, even pagans can do good in, in that sense. Am I making sense to you? They can be benevolent, give to benevolent causes, and those are all good things. But they're not good in God's eyes. I think Jesus tried to illustrate that when he was talking to his disciples about even evil evil people love their kids. They would yeah, not give them a scorpion. That's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, excellent, excellent point. Uh, so, so the issue is doing. There is none who does good. Is not suggesting that there are no benevolent acts done by lost people. It's it's suggesting that that goodness is not acceptable to God. It's not good enough for God. I used to illustrate this, and I'll do it today with, with this illustration. Suppose I was a college president. Uh, thank you, Lord, you never put me in that position. But, but suppose I was college president, and I went to a millionaire here in the city of Memphis, and I said, uh, you know, we've got this college. This guy is a believer. We've got this college, and I, we, we need a substantial uh, gift to help us. We, here are some plans we have, some things we need. Uh, could you make a major contribution? We'd like to ask you for a hundred thousand dollars to help uh, help us toward this goal. He'd say he might say, you know, y'all are doing a good job because this, this is Memphis, so y'all is is acceptable. So y'all are doing a good job, and and I've heard of of what you're doing and what you're doing for the community. Yes, I want to do that. Uh, this this you're really serving the Lord, and I want I want to support that. I go to another businessman, another millionaire, who's a non-believer, and I say, we've got this plan, we, 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 here's what we're trying to do, here's what we're doing for the community, and so on. And the guy says, uh, you know, 
uh, I need an extra tax credit this year. Yeah, I'll give you $100,000. Um, which one will spend better? Which one will buy more gasoline? <laughs> well, if you bought gasoline with one with the, the non-believers $100,000 and you bought gasoline with the believers $100,000, how much gasoline could you buy? Same amount. So it doesn't spend any better. The the form of the act is identical in both cases. Yes? In the one case, though, the gift is motivated by serving the plan of God. The other is self-serving. So you see the point here? Goodness must be not only that it benefits a good cause, it must be that it has a good motive behind it. Does that make sense to you from God's point of view? So there is no one who does good. Not even, and your, your text will say not even one. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Jim, uh, Matthew 19 define good when the man came and says, well, what do I do good? And he says, why are you asking me? There's none good but God. And, and Jesus said, love your Lord, your God, your God, yeah, your yeah. Yourself, so yeah. It's yeah. As if Jesus defined good. Yes. And and you're right on you're right on target with one of the key issues for us as Christians. I am not free to define terms, especially value terms, on my own. I have I have bought into a worldview that says God gets to define value terms. This this is the problem from Genesis three. Who gets to define good and evil? And man and woman in Genesis 3 said, we want that right. And every, every time, uh, do you even read the newspaper anymore? Uh, um, but every time, I get it on my iPad and my cell phone. Um, every time I look at the newspaper, I'm looking at people who are trying to define good for themselves. Uh, good is what makes me happy. Or good is what benefits my cause. But, but that's not a divinely given definition. And the problem of the human race from the very beginning has been we have tried to arrogate to ourselves the right to make the decision about what is good and evil. And so as a Christian, I have um, recognized God's right to define what is good and evil. And that means, for example, when you get into the Old Testament, and goodness sakes, in Numbers and in in Joshua, uh, things that we would, we abhor. God commands. How do you deal with that? Well, as a child of God, the answer is, you say, God alone can define what is good and evil. He has defined that as evil. I must... I must bow to his definitions. Am I making sense to you? I don't. I no longer have the right. Uh, and can you explain that to a non-believer? No. Uh, but this is the God that we serve. He he thinks he's he thinks he's in control, <laughs> and he acts like it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, as a result. Of our defining terms, we define God. That's right. Yeah. Um, so at the end of verse 12, do you have not even one? Is that what you have in your text? No, not one. No, not one. There is, there is an interesting phenomenon in, the, in that line. Uh, there's a word that means up to. Uh, so not even up to one. So if you were to take a census of all the earth and count everybody on the earth that does good, you wouldn't even be able to add up to one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that, that's always been really significant to me. In verses, um, in verses uh, 10 through 12, uh, you, you 
you read about the, the human race's abandonment of God. And that will show up in two other ways, in verses 13 and 14 in their speech, and in verses 15 to 17, their actions, and then verse 18 will give the reason for all of this. So, we have abandoned God. We have abandoned the person of God. Um, Voltaire, I, I have read a little Voltaire, Voltaire, but I never read this quotation. Uh, so I'm, I'm quoting this from somebody who quoted somebody who quoted Voltaire. So I don't know whether it's true or not about Voltaire, but he's supposed to have said, God created man in his own image and man has returned the favor. Uh, in a very real sense, all the gods, if, if you look at polytheism throughout history, the gods are just big people with lots more power and ability, but with all the same flaws and foibles, and the best of men are better than the, than the best of the gods, morally. They're better than the best of the gods. Um, you see that in all the Sumerian myths? All well, it's, it's there. Egyptian, it's, Egyptian it's in Greek. It's in, it's in Latin. Um, I, f- I first became, in the very opening lines of, of Virgil's great epic poem, the, the Aeneid, uh, uh, I think it's line 12 or 13 in book one, um, Virgil says, is, such, uh, is so great wrath proper for the gods? <laughs> so... So the gods are capable. They're, they're, they're so powerful. Their wrath is more powerful. But is that right? Is that good? The gods come under judgment, even by men, yes? And, and rightly so, because their gods are, are reprehensible. Do you know any of the stories of Zeus? I'm not going to repeat any of them. Yes. It's a, yeah, it's quite colorful. He, he chased everything on two and four legs. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's none good, not even up to one. Uh, we have remade God in our image so we can control him. Uh, now, their speech, verse 13, quoting from Psalm 510. Um, their throat is an open tomb. Do you know why? Jesus said in Matthew 10, he sends the disciples out on their mission. Remember this? And uh, he says, if, if you come into a town and they don't receive you, as you leave the town, shake the dust off your feet against them. Do you know why I told him to do that? It was apparently a custom for Jews who traveled in Gentile territory to shake the dust off their feet before they came in, lest they bring dirty dirt into, <laughs> unclean, <laughs> defiled dirt into the Holy Land. So what he's saying is the village that will not receive your message is unclean Gentile territory. Does this make sense to you? Why, why would Gentile territory be unclean? Well, you'd say, well, it's Gentile. Yes, but there's more to it. Gen- do you know what Gentiles do? <sighs> they bury people right in town. Can you imagine that? Jews never did. They always bury people outside the town. They never bury in the town because that would defile the town. And so, And they don't mark the grave. So you could have walked over a tomb and not even known it. And you, you have defiled dirt on your feet. As you come back into the Holy Land, you shake the dust off your feet, lest you should defile the land. Does this make sense to you? Yeah. So, but... but that's why they, they buried all those people on the east, outside of the wall east of Jerusalem, yeah, right? Yeah, right that's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, over on Mount of Olives. So, so here, verse 13... Paul is saying, and and quoting from Psalm 5, Paul is saying, the contagion of death is not outside your town. It's in your own throat. And if you you were to open a tomb, they would think of, of, uh, of the contagion 
of death as kind of flowing as a flux out of the tomb and their mouths are bringing that same contagion of death out. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They, they deceive with their tongues and, they, and the poison of asps is under their lips. The poison of asps, the word for asp here can be, it's, it's not it's not always but it can be a reference to cobras so um, I doubt that that would be the point here because Israel wouldn't have much exposure to cobras in its cultural setting in Psalm 5 but um, you have you have the plague of, of the serpents in the, in the uh, 40 years of wandering uh, and so you have that here Everything they say is death dealing. Uh, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Verse 14 continues. Verse 15. Now their actions. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Driving through small parts of India in years past. Um, there are places, even in South India, South India is not where you go for a vacation. Right? It's not where you go to see the sights and so on. Uh, but even in South India, you get out into the fields, out into the countryside, and there's real beauty there. And, and there, they have the Ghats, the G-H-A-T, Ghats. Uh, these, this is a mountain range that runs north and south in the lower part of the, uh, it, uh, the Indian subcontinent. And there, there is beauty in those mountains. They get up six, seven, eight thousand feet. There's beauty in those mountains. No snow, by the way, but but uh, uh, there's beauty there. But you drive into a town, and it's filth. Everywhere you look is filth. They apparently don't know how to how to maintain buildings in good repair. Uh, either that, or they don't have the funding. And so they overbuild what they can actually care for and things just go to ruin and they don't ever do anything about it. They just leave it as it is. And everything is there is, is just filth. We have dear friends who, he's from India, she's from the U.S. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was she who <laughs> influenced him to go back to India as a missionary. But after several years in India, she said, I've got to get out of here. I've got to see some beauty. And so they now live in Singapore. <laughs> and they're ministering there. But uh, uh, some of you may know them, but so uh, I'll leave it at that. But, but um, every, every place man goes, we leave filth and destruction. Uh, and that's not even when we're in a war. We're just, we're just that way. Uh, so their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. Finally, verse 18 gives the reason. Uh, how do we, uh, what, what does this all come from? Um, this quotes from Psalm 36, 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, folks have, have really objected to this. Because they say, well, they can't fear God because perfect fear, perfect love casts out fear. Fear has torments. You remember this? Yeah, First John. What do we do with that? Is there a contradiction between this and what's in First John? And my, my commitment is, no, there are no contradictions in Scripture. My, my problem is that my brain can't always wrap around all the details of Scripture and, and solve the problem. So what does it mean? There is no fear of God before their eyes. Um, Exodus twenty twenty is a good place to go to to see what this is all about. Um, this is this is the giving of the law. I'm going to grab this bottle over here because I, I could get through this class without drinking, but I'll be a lot happier if I if I drink. So, I, I quit four or five times a day. In fact, so. <laughs> on tape, you know. I know. That's part of the reason I said it. (laughs) Exodus 20.20. This is at the uh, 
giving of the law, uh, of, of, of the Ten Commandments, rather, uh, this is really not law. Um, what, what makes something a law? Yeah, good. Uh huh, and that's important. That that that's insightful. Um, without penalty, law is just good advice. There are no penalties assessed in the Ten Commandments. These are the policies of the covenant. This is what God is going to specify in chapters twenty one, twenty two, twenty three. Uh, he's going to give a lot, a lot of commandments in those three chapters, and so there he's going to give law. Here he's giving policy, and in Exodus twenty twenty, uh, um, they have they have been terrified at the revelation of God, so they've run from His presence, and they come to Moses, and, and, and verse eighteen. Uh, all the people saw the the noises and the and the torches and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain burning and the and the people were afraid and they they fled and they stood at a great distance and they said to Moses speak to us yourself and we will listen but do not let god speak to us any more lest we die they think if they think God's purpose for them is destructive. They don't realize that his purpose for them is, is life and hope. Moses says, verse 20, it, it's, a, it's an interesting verse. Uh, Moses said to the people, do not fear, because in order to test you, God has come, and in order that the fear of him might be uh, before your faces, uh, lest you sin. Which is it? Are they to fear or are they not to fear? Both. How can that be true? <laughs> That's the problem. A man in my Sunday school class in Dallas said one day, well, are they two different words for fear? I said, nope, same word. <laughs> so what's the point? Hebrew does this frequently. It uses one word in multiple senses and assumes that the reader is going to be able to sort that out. So the first kind of fear I call a paralyzing fear. It's the fear that you have, mothers, when your five-year-old is sitting at the Thanksgiving table at your mother-in-law's house. Best linen on the table, china, crystal. It's old, old Thanksgivings, right? And some brilliant soul decided the child ought to have grape juice to drink. <laughs> and you see the child's hand going out, and the angle, everything slows down when this happens, <laughs> including your responses. You see the hand going, and you know that hand's not going to hit the glass at the right place. It's going to get knocked over, and you're going to be utterly shamed before your mother-in-law who, who wasn't really sure about you to start with. And, and you think, i got to stop the kid. Well, what shall I do? Now, these, these, these thoughts go through your mind in a flash. Shall I reach out and grab the hand? But if I do it too forcefully, I'll drive the hand forward and knock, knock glass over. If I do it not forcefully enough, I won't stop the kid. Maybe I should say something. Well, what shall I say? I don't know what to say. If I say it too loud, the child will jerk. If I say it too softly, it won't stop. If I say too much, it won't stop. If I say too little, it won't stop. And by that time, the kid's already hit the cup and it's knocked over and you're... So this is a paralyzing fear. All of us have experienced this in one way or another. The other is an impelling fear. A good illustration of an impelling fear is April 15th. <laughs> April 14th, you think, oh, I've not done my taxes. 
what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to get busy, and I'll be mad at my wife, and I'll be mad at the kids, and I'll be kicking the dog, yes, because i got to get these tax returns in. An impelling fear drives you to action. A paralyzing fear keeps you from action. In fact, if you get into Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 11, folks, I can't tell you how important that passage is. That passage, you know chapter 6 uh, has the great commandment. Yes? The great shepherd. Yeah. But what you don't know, because nobody ever teaches Deuteronomy in church, what you don't know is that chapters 6 to 11 are the exposition of the great commandment. You want to know what it means? To love God with all your heart, soul, and strength as an Israelite in the 15th century B.C.? Go read that passage. Um, and one of the synonyms for loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength is faith. And another synonym for loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength is fearing the Lord. So what is John talking about when he says uh, there is no fear in love uh, Love has torments. Perfect love casts out fear. What is he talking about? All fear? Or a certain kind? Do you, do you see the point? He's talking about that paralyzing fear. Uh, uh, so, but, but other passages of Scripture talk very positively about the fear of the Lord. You know this. What is the motto of the book of Proverbs? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So is, is John contradicting Proverbs, or is it rather that there are two different kinds of fear? Does this make sense to you? Uh, my, my, uh, one of my professors, he was a Renaissance man in a lot of ways. Um, gosh, he was, whew, he was such a great teacher to... Uh, <laughs> um, you know about did I tell you about the um, uh, Jewish Catholic ecumenical Christmas carol <laughs> there's, there's a new one's coming out it's, it's, it's really good and you ought to hear it it goes like this Oy vey Maria <laughs> so uh, um, I know I'm sorry but he, he, he taught he said one time, when you come, when you've argued soundly from two premises, and as you, as you argue soundly con- continually and you, you get closer and closer together on these two lines of reasoning, and you find a contradiction, if, if all the argument is sound up to this point, you probably need to make a distinction someplace earlier that you didn't make. And this is where we are with this issue of fear in John and Paul and Proverbs and Moses and Psalms and Isaiah and elsewhere where the fear of the Lord occurs. So there's no fear of God before their eyes. They have no... It, it's, and don't, don't lessen it to reverence. Uh, reverence is in view. It's included, but it's, it's, there's fear. Um, my mother whom I loved profoundly, could strike fear into my heart. Do you know this experience? Yeah. <laughs> Abraham, know your mother. No, you didn't know my mother, but you know this experience. <laughs> I, I saw it last night in class. Abraham used that as a gauge to assess the state of a people mm-hmm. when he went to Abimelech. Because he told Abimelech... That There's no fear of God in this city. It's because he yeah. saw no fear of God in the city. Right. So, this is the reason behind the whole line of quotations that we have in verses 10 to 18. Verse 18 is the root of the whole problem. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's not only true of Gentiles, it's also true of Jews. Yes? I just, I like before their eyes, because I think in my life I have these um, paradigm shifts. And it's my view of God, mm-hmm. of God, is not correct. Yeah. And God pushes it out, and there's a book someone recommended. It's profound. I mean, the Jonathan Edwards, the end to which the world was made. But you know that God is a source. Yeah. And He's God with a big G. He's a source of all good. He's a source of all, you know. And yeah. I assent to that, 
but my heart. I know. No, that's not. This is good, and this is the source of my happiness, and, and it's not. And you know, and I think that's fear too. Yeah. Have an improper view of who God is. It will be a false fear. Versus, look, you know, it'll take me. Versus a true yeah. understanding. Yeah. God is the big G. This is He is the source of creation. Of I mean, my mind can't wrap around. Yeah. That. In love and peace, but I just started. You know, I asked myself that question. Yeah, you know, I'm still Absol- off it completely. Absolutely, but it comes back to that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I if if I could describe God's work in my life uh, since the earliest memory I have of of these kinds of things, it it's been that He's been divesting me of the wrong loves. Yeah. Um, I, I remember thinking about the denomination that I grew up in. The very name was one of the most beautiful. I can remember where I was in my junior high school when I thought this. The name of that denomination is one of the most beautiful words I've ever seen. And, and progressively, the things that I have thought I could give my life to, I, I keep, he keeps drawing out and taking away so that nothing is left but him. And I'm not there yet. Yes, sir. Why is it that there's no fear of God before their eyes as opposed to within their heart? Yeah. Once external, you know, the. Yeah. When I read those first couple, it's there's uh, in your mouth and all those. Those are all internal things. Right. The next two verses are external. So sin is internally in my heart, but it's also externally in my actions. Mm -hmm. But in this seat, I'm not sure. I've I've pondered that in the past, but not in any kind of structured way. Is that an idiom? Possibly. Um, the 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 one thing I could I can suggest is in the Bible you tend to become like what you gaze upon. So one the the classic example negative of this is Lot's wife. She gazes upon. But in 1 John, um, and we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. What you gaze upon, you become like, and you share its destiny. So uh, they, they have not placed God before their eyes, and so there is no fear of God before their eyes in that sense. I, that's the best I can do with that right now. Um, so then um, and, and there are multiple places where we can go for this idea of 1 Peter 2.17 2 Corinthians 5.11 2 Corinthians 7.1 there are other places as well I just picked those out at random more or less uh, but he goes on to say then the summation of it in verses 19 and 20 we know that, therefore that whatever the law says it says to those who are in the law that every mouth may be, sh- may be plugged up and all the world held liable to punishment before God because by the works of the law no, sh- no flesh shall be um, justified in his sight because by the law is the knowledge of sin. I think that's probably self-explanatory sufficiently. Let me, though, ask you one question. What knowledge of sin does the law give? It helps us to know what's right and wrong. That's the way we usually read it. It's not the way Paul develops it. Turn to Romans 7. Uh, Is that right? Uh, Yes, it is right. Chapter 7... And uh, verse uh, 7. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? Well, obviously not. Um, But I would not have known sin except through the law. Well, there it is. I wouldn't know sin. uh, So, um, obviously that means know what is sin, know what is good. Except that's not the way he develops it. Watch what he does in the rest of this verse and the next. Um, 
for I would not have known covetousness if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, does that mean that nobody's heard, if, if you've never heard a commandment not to covet, that you never covet? No. Do you even know that, do other people recognize that you're coveting? Sure. Um, you may not realize it, but, but other people do. So something else is going on here. Are you with me here? So what's going on? Look at, look at verse 8. But sin, and here he's, sin he's going to define a little bit later as the sin that dwells in us. Uh, sin here is um, what, what I will call, as we get to this passage, indwelling sin. Indwelling sin is a capacity of our human nature. It's not sin nature. If you're reading the NIV, it's going to talk about sin nature in this passage. There's, there's nothing in the Bible, there's no expression in the Bible that has the term sin nature as the proper translation. Not one. Uh, we don't have a sin nature. We have one nature. It's called human. <laughs> it's, it's fallen. But even as a redeemed human, I still have indwelling sin. This is a capacity to sin against my own will, as Paul develops it in the passage. Watch this, verse 8. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetousness. For without the law, sin is dead. Non-existent? Does dead mean non-existent? What's it mean? Hmm? Not even separated. Not alive. It's, hmm? It can't act. It can't act. It, it, so, so how does indwelling sin begin to act? Through the law. I, if I feed myself law, I'm going to find myself doing sins that I didn't even plan to do, didn't even intend to do. This is the point later in chapter 7. Um, verse. Let's pick it up at eighteen. For I know that that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present to me, but the doing of the good is not. For I don't do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do is the thing that I do. Now, if I'm not doing what I want to do. It's no longer I that's acting, but sin that dwells in me. Um, I find then the law, principle, to me who wants to do the good, that to me the evil is present. I take pleasure in the law of God, according to the inner man. Is that a good thing? We used to think it was. It's not. I take pleasure in the law of God, according to the inner man, but I see another law in my members at war with the law of my mind and taking me captive by the law of sin uh, which is in my members. I have, I have this desire to, to be obedient and I want to keep the law to be obedient but that enables indwelling sin to go to work and produce acts of sin against my will. So he says um, so the, law, the law is not life given because no one can meet it. That's right. And further, it's, it, the reason we can't, can't meet the standard of the law is that I have this indwelling sin in my present condition as a, as a redeemed human being. I still have indwelling sin. And if I feed it law, it's, it's like any other beast. You feed it, it gets stronger. Mm-hmm. Am I making sense? Yes, sir. I, I know this is a different way of looking at things. Terry, this is... This doesn't make any sense. I understand. Uh, Thanks, Terry. I know. Well, we'll we'll work it out as we go and see how it how it develops. Yes, ma'am. That would just I mean, you say this, but because you're seeking out the law versus seeking out God. Uh-huh. I mean, because your eyes yeah. are passed on, so yeah. you're dwelling on the law. And you're That's right. So so keeping the law is in a form. It, it is legalism. 
in some sense. And, as, and, and my legalistic nature is tied with indwelling sin, and I can't break that tie until the resurrection. So when, when, I, when I'm resurrected, I'm re- reunited with my flesh, but now that flesh is not weak. It's strong because it's bound irrevocably to God and not sidelined by uh, any use of law at all. Is that, is that what he's saying there in verse 23 then? The other law? Mm-hmm. Another law? Yeah. I yeah. So there's the law of God. Right. And this other law in my members is this indwelling sin, that he, the sin that dwells in me. It's not I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I want to do the good. I want, and I find in the law the good. But when I try to do the, the good that the law has stipulated... That feeds indwelling sin, and like any other beast, I've never. This is the first time I ever used that metaphor. Maybe it's a good one. I don't know. We'll see. But I, it, as I feed the beast, it acts and does beastly things, and so I find myself. And this is Paul's point. He's not. Um, he he's not doing what he wants to do, and as long as he's trying to do it by obedience. He will never be able to do what he wants to do. It's when he gives up on obedience that he's able to live the righteousness that is our right because of redemption. Does it make it? It makes us like the desire to follow the law, which we can't, makes us like more self-centered mm-hmm. and maybe prideful yes. in trying yeah. to accomplish yeah. it, which we can't. Yeah. And so it's this constant want to but by our own mind we can't yeah so back to Romans 3 and verse 21 summary chapter 1 16 and 17 is the summary of this whole unit that goes through chapter 8 as you see at the top of the screen here Romans 1 18 to 425 is talking about righteousness by faith alone, and that's why we have the shift from verse twenty to verse twenty-one. Do you see? And do you have? But now in verse twenty-one, is that what you have? Yeah. Yeah. Romans uh, 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 three twenty-one. Three twenty-one. Yes. But now, right. Right. Uh, so we're we're coming now to the point where Paul has laid out his case. You can't have righteousness by works. It's simply not going to happen because you're not equipped. You have a disability in your being for use of, of commandments. I cannot use commandments to achieve righteousness. I am unable to do that. All I can do is when I get commandments, they, they turn into violation of the very thing that I was trying to do. So, from verse 21 through 425, he's going to give us the by faith portion of this. We're justified not by works, but by grace. And not by our obedience, but by faith. So, verse uh, 21, so uh, here 321 to 425, demonstration that acceptance with God comes by the work of Jesus only through faith. So, verses 21 to 25, God has provided a way for us to relate to himself without law through faith. This uh, I, I was looking at a couple of commentaries last night just to see what they do with this, verse 21, and a couple of the commentaries actually go the way that I'm, I'm going to propose here. You read in verse 21, Now, um, apart from law, the righteousness of God is revealed being testified by the law and the prophets. That reading, apart from law, the righteousness of God is revealed, is saying God's now going to reveal a righteousness without without any revelation of it in the law. And yet, in the Old Testament, there is constant revelation of this. Last night we were talking about this, and you brought it up. Jude, I'm sorry, uh, Lot. How would you describe Lot morally and spiritually in, in Genesis 19? Yeah. He's a failed uh, spiritual. 
Um, I, I, I said it was Jude last night. I'm going to see if it's Jude today. Yeah. How can he be righteous? And yes, is it Second Peter two? Then Second Peter two says righteous Lot vexed his righteous soul for all the unrighteous deeds which unrighteous di- men did in their unrighteousness, and it, it just plays on this. And and Chago said before we started this this afternoon, somebody said to him, "How could Lot be righteous? How could how could how could God call Lot righteous?" Look! Look what he, all the stuff that he did. And but God, but that, God, because because righteousness doesn't depend on anything you do. But God did call him righteous. Yeah. So my task is not to question how could God do it. It's 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 to to submit to that and learn to read the text differently. Yeah. So how is he right? Um, Abraham is a righteous man. Yes. Mm-hmm. David. Except well, let me let me go through my litany here. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta play with your brains. You gotta let me go go through this. Uh, uh, Abraham's a righteous man, except that um, he's a big liar. Yeah, he's a huge liar. Uh, In chapter twenty, chapter twenty. See, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things most people don't know. And chapter twenty follows chapter eighteen. Amen. and you'll say, well, that's certainly obvious. Did you mean it to be imp- profound? And the answer is yes. In chapter 18, Abraham is 99. In 21, I, uh, Isaac is born at 100. So how old is, is Abraham in chapter 20? He's between 99 and 100. Yes? And he said, this is the Abimelech story. Um, uh, she really is my sister. She's the daughter of my mother, but not of my father. By the way, Jews say that Abraham had the whole law and kept it. But the law prohibits marrying a woman who is the daughter of your mother, uh, of your mother, but not of your father. So, if he had the whole law, he broke it. Secondly, in 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 Genesis uh, twenty. He says, And when the Lord caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you will show me. Everywhere we go, say he is my, he is my brother. <laughs> so how long have they been telling this lie? A long time. 25 years. He's a habitual liar. He He's a habitual liar. He had a plan. Third, when Hagar starts... Her trouble in the family. Uh, Sarah comes to him and says, this is all your fault, is the way it sounds as we translate it. But the point is rather, it is your responsibility to deal with this. And what does he do? Abdicate his responsibility. He, do, whatever, do whatever you with, you want to with her. He abdicates his responsibility as the head of the family. He will not do justice. Fourth. What is fourth? Uh, there are five, and I can't think of the fourth and fifth at this point. But there, there are five big issues where Abraham falls woefully short. So how is he righteous? It's evidently not by works of the law. So how is he righteous? Romans, uh, Romans is going to quote it. Genesis fifteen six. He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So. So even Abraham falls afoul of this. He cannot claim righteousness by his works. Oh, <laughs> in chapter 21 of Genesis, Abimelech and, and his general come to meet uh, Abraham. And they said, God is with you in everything you do. Now, swear to me that you will not deal falsely with me. Why does he want him to swear that he won't deal falsely with Abimelech? He already has. He is not a loyal man. And God protects him when he's disloyal. He's a a dangerous man. because He has God's presence and he doesn't act with loyalty. So how is he righteous? 
every story in the Old Testament we read to get a moral out of. Quit that. Go find what the text is trying to tell you. Don't make a moral out of it. Um, these are not moral stories. A lot of them are not morality stories at all. They're talking to us about people who sinned greatly but have a great Savior. Yeah. So, yeah. so we'll pick this up next time. Let me go, though, give you this one point and we'll stop. Verse 21. For, for a variety of reasons, I think I should read this, not for apart from the law the righteousness of God is revealed. It is. But now a without law righteousness is revealed. Being, and, and Greek will per, permit this translation. So, and, and there are two, two commentaries I found last night that take that view. A with that, so I can't have a works righteousness, then I better have one, a without works righteousness possible. And that's what he's going to talk about in the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4. Well, it's, I, I stopped on time, more or less, today. So let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, thank you for giving us the possibility of a righteousness without works. We don't have to earn it. We can't earn it. The very, the very act of trying to earn it means we'll violate all that we're trying to do. So if, if that is our lot, as, as my favorite professor said, Lord, you remember him saying this, a woman said to him one day, well, if that's our condition with God, then God help us. And that is the point. We have no help but you, and the only thing we can do is to rely on you for everything, and that includes our righteousness. And in Jesus, we have all the righteousness that is yours. I don't understand that, and I don't even see it in my life, but I see it in your word, and so I, I choose to trust your word when I can't trust my life. For Jesus' sake we pray.